0: It's bonus time, bingers. In this episode, I am joined by one of the creators and hosts of the amazing Undisclosed podcast. She brought Adnan's story to Sarah Koenig and truly is the impetus of the wrongful conviction investigation podcasting movement. Please welcome my friend and one of my favorite people on the planet, Rabia Chaudhry. The internet's full of true crime podcasts, Robbie, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today and tell us a little bit about the Greg Lance case.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Bob. I'm excited to talk to you. I, you know, I I love getting a chance to connect with you any time I get.
0: I know we should we should start recording the the half hour conversations we have every time before we record.
1: I know it's the pre conversation and the post conversation. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> well, Robbie, before we get into the Greg Lance case, which was a one of the subjects of the undisclosed podcast. I want to talk a little bit about, for my listeners, about the Undisclosed Podcast. And if you give us a little bit about your background, how you got into podcasts in general, and then how the Undisclosed Podcast came to be.
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, for I, I am an attorney and I practiced immigration, civil rights, and during my professional career. But I have been since 1999 working on a case, the Adnan Sayed case, which was the subject of serial. For all these years, trying to basically help exonerate him because I believed he's free, and sometimes when I think it was 2013, we had kind of hit this wall in the appellate process, and I was like, "I'm just, I can't do it anymore. It's not working." And I reached out to the This American Life team that turned into Serial, as everybody knows, it exploded. But what was happening when, when Serial ended? When Serial was ongoing, I was blogging about it. A bunch of other people were blogging about the case. Other lawyers were. But when it ended, a lot of people were left kind of unsatisfied. And a friend of mine said, "Listen." Nobody's reading your blogs. <laughs> you should take all that material you've written and do your own podcast because people want to know more about the case. And there isn't a lot of resolution with serial. I mean, it was a great story, but there wasn't a lot. There was a lot of stuff that they missed like from a legal perspective. Uh, you know. So I teamed up with two other lawyers who I didn't know, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. And we're like, all right, you know what? We, all three of us were blogging about the case. Um, and so let's just do this. We're just gonna do, we're just gonna cover Adnan's case and that's it. So I think we ended up doing like 30 episodes on Anand's case because we go, like your like your show, into a lot of detail and answering so many questions that Serial left and also others that Serial never touched. But by the time we were done, we had requests from other defendants and lawyers and instance projects from across the country say, hey, can you take a look at this case too, by the way? And so it's just, that's how it got started. And we have an incredible audience that loves to really dive deep into these cases, so we've been on the air for more about five and a half years. We've covered twenty-two cases. We worked. We work with the defendants and their lawyers. Um, we've helped in nine exonerations so far, and um, it's just been incredibly fulfilling work. Even though it's 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 hard work, you know how it is, Bob. It's very frustrating, emotional, tough work.
0: Yeah, it is, and you know, you're just you're always under the gun, and and somehow you and Susan and Colin made it work. I mean, how did you how did you pick of all the bloggers and people out there, how did how did you pick Susan and Colin? Because the three of you make up such an amazing team because you all have your different strong suits. How did you land on Susan and Colin?
1: Yeah. I bring like the emotional energy, <laughs> the weepy factor and <laughs> the right. ang the rage. <laughs> I found Susan and Colin's blogs were both posted on Reddit. And when I read I remember I actually remember the day that I read Susan's blog that was about Jay statements as she compared it to the cell phone evidence and I was like and it was like a 40 page long blog it was ridiculous and I was like, who is this woman like who is this woman because she was able to figure out why Jay kept ma- changing his statements which and Jay Wildes was the main witness in the case and even Sarah Koenig and Serial was like I don't know why Jay's making this nobody could figure it out why his statements kept changing and Susan Simpson figured it out and I'm like this person, and even before we had even decided to work together, I was like, can I just give you the rest of the documents that are, are not public, just to see what you can, what else you can bring, pull out of them. And Colin had blogged, was blogging as well. And he one day blogged about the lividity. And again, I was like, first of all, it's a, it's a professor, you know, he he's a law school dean and professor. So he's like very academic, very intellectual. And Susan's, Sherlock Holmes. So it's like, it's just, I just got lucky. We, Adnan got lucky. It's an amazing team. And, um, I'm just, I'm the lightweight in it, but, (laughs) you you know, I get, I get dragged along with them. Those two are like the superstars. Well, and I
0: love what you guys have done. Can you talk a little bit about you've adapted your process and the result has been incredible. I mean, the work obviously speaks for itself, nine exonerations, you know, and you've covered the 22 cases. But you know, you with a non, it was very, very long form. You know, you said thirty episodes goes on for a long time, and you guys have shifted that to where now you you do like some some mini series kind of mini seasons. Yeah,
1: because there's no way um, you can do that year after year after year, especially because the three of us. I'm now kind of full time doing this work, but Susan and Colin, I think are, they still have other jobs, and so up until last year or up until two years ago, when I had another another child. I also was working another full-time job. So the three of us with full-time jobs could not be full-time also investigating other cases. So what we have, what it's kind of transformed into is every year undisclosed has one long season, which will be the long in-depth case. It'll be like maybe 12 main episodes, 12 addendum episodes, and then additional whatever episodes needed, like when, when new stuff comes out. And Susan and I kind of take turns taking leads on those. And then in, but before and after that long season, Colin will do mini series. Like, so he'll do between like a four episode to an eight episode, more of a storytelling type of story on, on smaller stories, stories where we don't really have the time to investigate. And maybe doesn't even need investigation, but it needs like a public push, like a petition, like something like that, right? So, but ca- calling awareness to these cases. So, Colin will do three or four of those a year. Then Susan and I are responsible for our own cases. We do the investigation, we do the research, we do the scripting, um, and that helps relieve the burden. So the year that Susan is doing that, I don't have to do that, but I'm already preparing for my next year's case type of thing and on and off.
0: It's a a great process, And, and one thing that I've noticed as you've done that process as well as the people that you've brought onto your team is that your production quality is incredible and i remember i remember back to the first episode of serial <laughs> don't dynasty don't remember <laughs> and i remember the first episode of undisclosed and i remember thinking
1: oh.
0: i well i can do that good at least when <laughs> i heard
1: <laughs> if they can do that i can do that oh <laughs> right. it was a nightmare it was a nightmare the whole world was watching i mean the you know it's like you know every outlet every newspaper outlet had announced that serial part 2 the follow up to serial is going to come and it was like rolling stone every major outlet and i was like shit and it, it was awful. I edited that. I don't know how to edit, um, so uh, I did it in GarageBand, which I learned over a weekend. It was um, terrible, but you know, you live and you learn. And I think that's the great thing about this medium is that we are we are able to live and learn through it. But also, um, we have such incredible listeners, Bob. I mean, like our our f- listener base, uh, our audiences are so loyal. They're, they allow us to F up. They allow us to screw up and get up and fix it. And I appreciate that so much.
0: Yeah, and that's that's one. Nice thing about, and I think we have a lot of crossover between your audience and mm-hmm. my audience, but especially with our process because we, as as I was telling you before, we we started rolling and we have our rat race here where we or rat wheel where we, every Monday it's like, what's the new subject? Start researching, start reading, start writing, and then record and edit, and then breathe for two days on the weekend, and then start all over again every mm. week. Uh, and that that process definitely results in a lot of mistakes, and and our audience is is very forgiving of that too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you get stuff wrong. You get facts wrong sometimes. You got to make mm-hmm. corrections. That's okay. I mean, we're all, you know, it's just that's life.
0: You know, the worst thing for me lately is since, since COVID, you know, Mike actually lives like 35, 40 minutes away from me. And so he started working remotely most of the time. He's only here one or two days a week, sometimes three. And I found without him here to babysit me. I screw up way more (laughs) because usually he's sitting in the booth with me when I have my script on my teleprompter. And when I flub something, he's like, nope, nope, nope. You screwed that up. But now instead I get a text like, can you go back in the booth and re-record this line? Because you you said your name instead of someone else's name.
1: It can be hard to be diligent when you're just like alone in a room by yourself. I mean, most of the time I'm like, I really should should like go through the script or something. And I'm like, well, let's see what's happening on Twitter instead. It's hard.
0: Yeah, I do the same thing. You know, speaking of Twitter, you know, I still well, and, and it's a fact. I I credit you to me uh, being able to change careers and get out of the fire service because you were the you were the first person. We, of course, we didn't know each other; we'd never met. But when I made the Serial Dynasty, you started retweeting some of my stuff and then tweeting back, and the, and that you know everybody was so hungry for serial content back then, and you know, stuff about Adnan's case that that it it, it drove enough people to kind of get me launched when I started doing the podcast and it's, it's, it's funny we were talking about the, the audio production because I still remember like the first tweet you sent, you retweeted it and I think you tagged Colin and Susan in it and said, well, it sounds better than our first episode. This guy's all right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Listen, it's, it's been rough. It's been, and you know, what's also hard is when you have, because those first, that first series, we had no system set up. It wasn't like, okay, I'll do the scripting. You do the. It was like, it was ad hoc, and the three of us would all be in the scripts together. That's three different voices. You know, my series is going to sound different than Sir- Susan's. And it's gonna—I can tell when I read a script who wrote it. Like I can—I don't know if our audience can, but we have different voices and we write differently and think of the stories differently. And uh, and it was like just like the three of us trying to meld our brains together. It was ugly. But um, but listen, you credit nobody but yourself because I was really astonished that somebody like you, who has a full time job, has no reason to give so much time, energy, effort to the case of this young man who he doesn't know at all, uh, but is doing it out of a sense of justice. And I was just bowled over in awe of you, and I still am.
0: Well, I appreciate it, and I am definitely in awe of you guys. And for part of that reason is due to your coverage of the Greg Lance case, which mm-hmm. is what I want to dig into now. Yeah. Now, this case I was a little more familiar with than some of the others. Uh, you know, I don't have time to listen to every episode of every of every podcast out there, but I've listened to, I listened to a lot of Undisclosed, but I actually got to participate a little bit in the Greg Lance case. Yeah,
1: you were my first guest on the first addendum for that series.
0: Right, and it was, and the case is absolutely fascinating. So can you kind of break down the the, the basics of the
1: case? Yeah, Uh, the very basics of the case is um, August 5th, 1998, in this very rural area, Cook County, Tennessee. There was a couple that was executed basically in their sleep. They were an older couple their 60s, a Russian-Ukrainian couple, very different from the rest of the community around them, um, Victor and Al Klesnikow. And uh, Victor had been, the reason they were out there was he was a nuclear scientist and he'd been working on, I guess, nuclear nobody exactly knows what, but nuclear stuff out in that region. And he, then he kind of became a slumlord. He just started like, <laughs> I don't know, buying up all these really broken down properties and selling them to people and then evicting them. It was not, he wasn't didn't have a great reputation. And yeah, he was murdered this night. It was like in the middle of the night, and then his house was set on fire. Everything was set on fire. And by the time the you know the authorities got there, I think the house had already, it was like a blaze, and they couldn't recover a whole lot. And this is like around 3 a.m. By like 7 a.m., they had their suspect, and that suspect was Greg Lance, who happened to be one of the people who had bought a property from Victor and Allah, and who they were now trying to foreclose on. So the theory was they're trying to foreclose on him, so he must have done it, except that at that time, they were they were also foreclosing on like a dozen other people, <laughs> including people who lived right across the street from them, the Horns, uh, a family of very, very dangerous people with like, I can't even tell you how many murder stories are and, and murder convictions are related to that family. So, But nobody ever looked at the Horns. And so that's kind of the sh- long short of it. Greg was arrested for the murder um, the following spring. And he has always maintained his innocence. He had an alibi that night. He was seen. On camera at a video store later that night, he went home where he was seen by his wife and a friend. I mean, it's almost impossible for him to have time warped himself to, to commit all that murder, leave no forensic evidence behind, get back in his in bed, and, uh, and and he absolutely didn't do it. And so, all these years later, he he's been in prison for over what twenty years now.
0: Now the the victims, uh, you they were foreclosing on on twelve like you know a, a dozen or so people. Mm-hmm. They had some shady practices, it, if they I did, understood yeah. it correctly. They would sell people a property on land contract, and then, you know, so they would give them a down payment and give them payments, and then, and then look for a reason to then foreclose on them where they would right. get their property back and get to keep the money.
1: Right. They would do things like, say, you didn't pay the property, tax, and the property tax may be Has been due or not been due, and you know. But Craig, uh, Greg was smart. Greg knew how they operated, and from the beginning, he had uh, he already had an attorney. He was he was a really smart, savvy guy. He was college educated. He he wasn't like a lot of the other people that they were able to take advantage of. And he certainly he was he. Most people when they got the eviction notice of foreclosure, they would just kind of wrap up and leave. But he was fighting it. He had um he had a bankruptcy lawyer. I mean, he had he had his ducks in a row, and he was absolutely going to keep that property. It was a whole trailer park. And so what Victor's allegation, uh, as somebody who basically holds the note on uh, the mortgage on that, was that part of the mortgage agreement included that uh, Greg would do make certain uh, improvements on the property, which and that he didn't. And Greg was, you know, they were still going through the process, and Greg was going to show that he had made these improvements. And so that was, it was an excuse to get the property back, having already gotten A big fat down payment and gotten payments like for a couple of years, right? And now Greg made improvements. The property's worth more and they wanted it back. And they did it over and over again.
0: Well, and the state made it seem like this was a simple, simple case, you know, motivated by money. They did him wrong. They were trying to take his property. So he killed him. But it gets far more complicated because of Victor's career in his past. I mean, we look at him as this like slum lord, but. As you said, he was a nuclear scientist. And what was his background before moving to Tennessee to do whatever secret nuclear work he was doing?
1: Yeah, so they, his, his his wife and him, they were from the Ukraine, Russia at the time, as part of the Soviet Union at the time. They moved to the United States. He worked in Canada for a while. He was in California then. He worked for the U.S. government under a super secret clearance. And nobody really knew. They were just called the foreigners out in Tennessee. And uh, nobody really knew exactly what they were doing. Out there, and they would try. He would travel a lot to New York. So there were rumors that he was involved in some kind of Russian mafia thing. Maybe it was a Russian mafia hit. That maybe the government was trying to keep him silent because he knew nuclear secrets. I mean, there were all kinds of conspiracy theories. At the end of the day, it was nothing so glamorous, though. I mean, we we, we pretty much know what happened to him and who killed him. And but yeah, that that caused a lot of kind of intrigue. They were certainly a really odd couple out in that area. They, you know. But but the thing is and nobody knew them, nobody really knew their family and the kid they had kids but none of the kids lived in the area. So they were kind of out there by themselves.
0: Yeah, and that you know when you, when you look at the crime scene, which I was doing when I was on your addendum, it looks yeah. it looks very much like an assassination. You know, the, the fact that it looks you know so, that somebody came in and shot them both yeah. and then burned the house down to burn evidence. It looked very, like a very professional hit almost.
1: Right. So people thought, okay, maybe it's a it was a hit because they it was like uh they were killed in their in their bedroom. Alla was still in bed. She was in bed on her back, had been shot three times, once, I think once or twice through the eyes. So clearly she never even got up. Victor, it looked like was trying to get out of bed. So I'm guessing he was the second victim. He he probably heard the gunshot and rolled out of bed, but he was shot almost immediately, like right by the bed as well, holding onto a bedpost. And then Uh, The arson investigators uncovered like this whole trail of gasoline that went through the house and the house was set on fire and a lot of it was burned to bits. And so the question is, I mean, why would somebody do that if it was just going to be a hit? Uh, But we've also figured out why that happened too. why it was actually uh, burned to the ground. But, you know, but the thing is, this happened at night. And so the question is, how could somebody like we were initially like, how could somebody have seen what like how they were, how could they even have aimed in the dark, right? Until the murder weapon was found and it was a gun, a Tech-9 that had a flashlight taped to it. And that's how, you know, the murderers killed them in the dark. Um, I think they just crept in while they were sleeping, pointed a flashlight, shot her between the eyes and and got Victor immediately as well.
0: Right. And, and also, I think that the the gun itself is is interesting because that's not a gun that just something someone has laying around the house for self defense. I mean, the Tech Nine is essentially what you know people in our generation would call an Uzi. Mm, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: You know, there it, is it, it's not a, it's not a common gun. It's, that, it's you know, not a hunting gun. Out. It's
1: not a yeah.
0: Right. So I want to get into where your investigation led and and who we think did this. But before we do that, so we know why why Greg was a suspect because uh, because he was one of the people's being foreclosed on. But why did they single him out? As opposed to the other people, and then how did they build a case that landed him in prison?
1: Well, as far as we know, they literally didn't look at anybody else. They just didn't investigate, and, and this is almost exactly what happened in the Nans case, um, where and this is so common. Like, uh, cops will get like tunnel vision, investigators, and they won't look outside of that tunnel because they've got somebody in their in their sights, and that's it. And so there is no evidence in the entire investigative file that they even considered another suspect at all. And, and so the next day, what happened was the next morning, they showed up at Greg's home, and they were with him all day, and then they booked him and took and all day, they're like, we know you did it, just tell us how you did it, we know you weren't happy, and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, and they just tried to wear him down and wear him down, and he's like, he wouldn't give it, and when they showed up, they're like, you know, can we, you know, look at your stuff, and he's like, yeah, sure, so he didn't object to, and he, like I said, he was a smart guy, he ha- he knew You know how the law worked, but he was like, "Go ahead, take my shoes." He let them shave his arms and legs and take hair. He let them collect um, his guns. He's like, "Take anything you want. I have nothing to hide. Like, I have nothing to do with this." And um, they, I think, a couple of the reasons they were focused on him was what happened was like in the hours after the murder. The very first person they spoke to was Victor's sister. She was the only relative. She was much older. She was like really elderly who lived in the area. And the only name she was able to provide was, she's like, I think it might have been this guy, they have a court case with him that has a hearing date this week. So they had a hearing date that week on Greg's case. And his sister said it, and I think they just went with it. And so, and that was it. And the way they were able to convict him, they could not connect him to the murder weapon. They could not connect. The lab said that one, one hair from his hand was singed. He'd been wearing shorts that night. He, it was on video at this convenience store that night. Nothing else. Like there was, I, and I remember asking you, could somebody have done, put, like set a fire that huge? It was a big blazing fire. Um, get away with it without any other evidence, like on their shoes, like smoke, gasoline. They found nothing. They found nothing. So the way they were able to do it was they did what they, what police often do when they cannot connect a person to a crime is that they look for witnesses that they can coerce. Manipulate and pressure into giving statements, so they were able to do that with a few of the people who worked for Greg. And um, Greg was in the construction business, and he hired a lot of people who, you know, who are like people like who had addiction problems and who were on parole. He was really nice; he would let them stay in his home. And eventually, they all kind of just turned against him. But nobody testified that he committed the crime or they had any evidence. But they testified to things like he was really angry at them. He had been asking about how to get a gun, and he had because he. He was in the National Guard, and also he was applying to be a police officer in a local police station, but and also everybody had guns out there. So um, it was just that kind of insinuation that in front of a jury did it, and then his alibi defense was not presented, and, and there was a reason for that. It's because he was with another woman that night, and he had a girlfriend, um, fiancé at the time, and so that wouldn't have looked good for him either way.
0: Mm-hmm. But but so the 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 other woman would provide an alibi for him. They just didn't want to tarnish his character in front of the jury.
1: Well, there were two things that happened, and this was like really complicated. And I and what happened was they didn't they did not talk to her until about a year. And he had only had like a one like it was he knew her from the National Guard, but they had only been together once that night. And they found evidence. They found the the his like the the, the booking for the hotel. They found the evidence that he had paid for the room. So they had been together. They had met up that evening around seven or eight. Then they went to a hotel. And then Greg said he left around, he left the hotel room around 12:30, stopped at a convenience store around 1 a.m., which is where he's seen on camera. And then he came home. But what happened was when his lawyers went to speak to that woman, which is almost a year after this whole thing took place, she said to them, Oh, he was with me all night. He didn't leave until like maybe three or four a.m. And Greg said, That's not true. I know I left at 1230. And so there was this like Situation where she's probably misremembering because it's been a while, and also they've been drinking that night. But they can't put her on the stand and say that when they have this videotape. I mean, like they they couldn't reconcile these statements. And Greg was like, "I I, that's just not true. What she's saying is not accurate." So I don't know what to do with that. So they just decided to completely scrap her.
0: Yeah, that's that's a tough situation. So so the the entire case of him was was just completely circumstantial. Basically, sounds like they were just trying to prove motive did was there any witnesses that said they actually saw him there
1: no absolutely not zero nothing 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 not only did there's no witness they saw him there there's no they, the only um they connected him okay there was one piece of physical evidence that they said connected him to the crime when the gun was found it was just this really uh, hokey kind of rig um rigged up gun it had uh, this flashlight taped to it black duct tape and then it had this green cord you know that very common nylon green cord almost all of us have like laying around the house Um, You can get any Walmart, even dollar stores. It had a a length of green cord, nylon cord attached to it. One of the witnesses who was Greg's friend, who was basically, I mean, years later, we know that he was kind of pressured and forced into it, said that he remembered that cord being in Greg's yard, and then it disappeared. And Greg was like, yeah, because I cleaned it up. I mean, they had attached fireworks on the cord on the 4th of July. And so the state was like, oh, he used that cord to tie to the gun. And so that's, that's, but they didn't find his fingerprints on it. And this is again, 19, like 2000 by the time he's arrested, no, zero DNA testing is done on any of this. They found two fingerprints on the batteries and the flashlight didn't match him. And the way they operated is they didn't try to match it to anybody else.
0: Did the police have, were there any, within the investigative file, were there any leads that the police were ignoring because they had the tunnel vision on or did they not even look anywhere else?
1: Well, here's the thing. The file would the file um, didn't reflect any any leads other than like one, uh, one officer who that night, around the same time as the fire, said that he had seen a truck in the area with a couple of guys and they looked suspicious. That went nowhere. It wasn't until years later, actually, really until the podcast aired, and a new witness, not new, hes we've known and the family has known that he probably knows something, but he didn't talk until last year, basically told us that he had been there the night of the murder. He had been across the street at the night of the murder at the Horns residence, and um, he knew exactly what happened. He knew uh, who killed uh, the victims. And he said that he himself had gone to the TBI agent, that's the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent, and said, I don't know what you're doing investigating this guy, Greg, but you know the horns are responsible. I know. And that the agent said to him, shut up. Just shut up about this. Nobody's going to believe you. And we already got our guy and I just need you to shut up. So, what happened was, over the course of all these years, um, when Greg was locked up, he ended up getting locked up with people who were related to the horns or knew the horns and actually knew through the grapevine or because they were there that night, the horns ran a meth house. So, there were people in and out like all night. There were at least four or five other people there that night. And so, there was another witness that Greg was incarcerated with who just felt terrible about the whole thing. And uh, he was like, you know, in our interview with him, he was like, Greg's like a church boy. He's like, we, I can't believe that he's been locked up in here all this time. And Greg's wife was pregnant when he got locked up, and so he missed the birth of his baby. He's never seen her outside of prison. Rebecca, she's a beautiful young woman now. Um, and and so this guy also seems Billy Cleghorn was like, I, I mean, I know it wasn't Greg. I know it was the horns. I was there that night, and that gun. Sam owned a gun like that. We, there were multiple witnesses who have said that not only do they know Sam owned that gun. They had shot the gun. They had fired the gun themselves in his house. So, yeah, I mean, our main suspects are the Horns. We're pretty, we know it's the Horns. I mean, like, there's just no two ways about it. And this witness who was there across the street that night, who said that he had told the TBI, told police, and they told him to shut up. In the very final episode, we have his audio, which is kind of shocking. Um, the things that he finally admits to. And after the podcast stopped airing, um, he continued to talk.
0: Are you going to be returning to the case with the new information he's provided?
1: Yeah, I've never left the case in terms of like kind of still working with the legal team. When when Greg came to us, he had not had he had not been legally represented in many many years. I mean, it was heartbreaking. He had filed pro se petitions, meaning like he's representing himself and re- writing hundreds of pages even by hand. And he just didn't have a lawyer; he couldn't afford one for many years. So, thanks to the podcast and then connecting with other lawyers in. In Tennessee, I was able, we were able to put together an incredible legal team that we have working on this case. We're not publicly sharing who that team is right now because they, they want to work quietly behind the scenes right now, but it's a tremendous team. And they're getting ready, you know, they're getting ready to make some moves uh, on a legal front in the case. And so let's see how that goes.
0: So as this case stands right now, there's 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 nothing pending, but they're preparing to. Right. Are, are they going to be filing a, a petition for exoneration for actual innocence?
1: I uh so Tennessee's tough. I think right, they're going to be looking the fact there's there is the fact as I don't kn- know if an evidence review has been done. The part of the problem is the evidence was really mishandled over the years. The gun, the flashlight, all these things. I mean, now that you know you remember we've talked about like how incredible touch DNA is in the vacuum methodology. We can extract so much evidence now. The problem is there were times when Greg's mother went to the courthouse and was like, "Can I look at the evidence? Can I look?" And they just gave it to her and she's like touching the gun, you know. So oh, God. the evidence has not been handled properly over the years, and this is a, a factor. Um, having said that, those two fingerprints are still outstanding. And there's a whole world of DNA evidence that maybe exists that we have not been able to. That, so I believe that that's one aspect that the lawyers are going to look at, is how best in Tennessee to get agreement on, on testing the DNA with um, the DA's office And just what the best, I mean, they they have a different post-conviction procedure than they do in Maryland, so I'm not that familiar with it, but um, they're still kind of trying to explore, you know how it is, like, in a case, it's like, we've got all these different issues, what's our best foot forward type of thing, so they're still trying to prioritize that.
0: Right, it's always, there's always this balance of what you know and what you can prove in court, and what you're allowed to prove in court.
1: And the other crazy thing is, like, in many of the cases like this, like, even a witness who's testified, if they recant, and by the way, in, in, in Greg's case, a number of the witnesses recanted. They recanted afterwards. But we've seen this in multiple cases that when witnesses recant, courts will say, Well, that's not enough. Like we you either lied then or you're lying now. Right. So like you're not credible. And so that's not enough to overturn the conviction or grant a new trial. It's so you have to have that coupled with something a little stronger, oftentimes.
0: Right. Are you confident that that you'll have that in Greg's case?
1: I am pretty I'm pretty confident about it. I think it's just a matter of I mean, I say that, but then it's like, gosh, like, man, you just can't there are there are judges and prosecutors, like you just don't know. The right thing to do in this case would really be for and we have been told that there are people in the DA's office that have listened to the series. It's a whole new legal team there, you know? So it's not like it's the same players from twenty odd years ago. It's it's different people. And I really and I've heard a lot of great things about this district attorney that he's very fair and so I really hope that maybe what would happen is that once the legal team um, gets to the point where they need to start talking to the DA about what they're going to do moving forward, that the DA himself would be like, you know what, uh, I'm not going to oppose any of this, and I'm going to um, join you guys in trying to figure this out further. Maybe we got the wrong person.
0: That would be amazing. If we, you know, We've had that in a couple of cases where actually we, of our cases where we got – conviction integrity units involved and it just it makes the process much 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 more yeah i wouldn't say simple but easy county
1: has its own conviction i'm not quite sure i don't think it does actually but um not everybody has a conviction integrity that's this problem so they might not but having said that again uh, i've heard good things about this da and so i think in, in in fairness if we're able to present the statements of this witness who now is saying i was there that night and i saw all these different things and again all the witnesses connected to the horns don't know greg they've never known greg like their worlds were not he, th- never crossed paths that like, greg's never did draw like it was just completely different world so they have no reason to be lying about this not just one but multiple witnesses like four or five different ones saying that oh we know it was the horns
0: right is there anywhere where are there fundraisers for legal funds or petitions or anywhere where our listeners can go to try and help
1: Right now, there aren't any fundraisers or petitions for him because there hasn't been any movement legally. And um, on the fundraising aspect, thankfully, the legal team working for him is doing it pro bono. However, Greg makes these. He's an incredible craftsman. He just, I, if he gets out, I was like, you're going to build me a house, like a dream house. (laughs) Pay you for it. (laughs) He's a beautiful craftsman, and he makes these beautiful. He to gift to me and Susan and Colin. He made these beautiful little log cabin homes. I can't even describe it. Out of like like tightly rolled newspaper as little logs and he dyed it with coffee and then he put they're incredible and so um i think um just to help raise money like for his daughter because he hasn't been able to provide for her and you know she's at that age 1920 you know I obviously she needs a little hand um that we're gonna try to put those on etsy or sell them somewhere and so when i do that I'll when that's all set up i'll let you know bob and maybe you can share it with your listeners
0: that would be awesome and for more information on this case You can go check it out on Undisclosed. What season number was Greg's case?
1: This is like season four. But really, if you go to our website, I mean, it's hard to keep track because we go back and forth, we do updates. But if you go to our website and you just look at basically past cases, you'll find um, the state versus Greg Lance. And that was season four. It was from last fall, like from a year ago. We're about to, uh, so right now, Colin is in the middle of a couple of his short series. We're going to do like two short series. And then Susan begins her long fall series. In October, late October.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to have Colin on, I believe, next week he's coming oh. on to talk about the series that he's doing right now.
1: Brookings, yeah, it's a great case.
0: And I've been talking to uh, to Susan. We're trying to work something out to talk about one of her cases too. So all of that, listeners, will be up and coming. Mm. But I will get destroyed by my <laughs> audience if while I have you on the phone, I don't ask you for an update on Ednan's case. How, yeah. how is he doing? Where is he at? Are we still kind of in a holding pattern?
1: Yeah, so you know, I mean, last year after winning two appeals, we lost the final appeal in the court and then the highest court of Maryland by one vote, a panel of seven judges, and it was really devastating. It took him, a, a, I think, four or five months to kind of get out of his trauma over it. it took me the same time. I, I was, I truly was traumatized. I think the whole legal team was. Nobody expected it after all these years, and to lose by one vote is really hard to accept. So we basically just had to take a step back and say, okay, now, now what? Are we going to go to a federal habeas? Are we going to get back in post-conviction court? What is the best? So I ended up by the end of the year pulling together this great kind of brain trust of lawyers to really think it through. And um, we basically have a new, and it kind of an expanded legal team. We have new a new lead counsel on the case, a new investigator who has never worked on the case with us directly before. And they're, they've been working really, really hard this entire year. And they're kind of doing what's going on in Greg's case, which is trying to figure out what's, you know, lining up all the ducks, getting everything in a row. Hopefully for Adnan, we will be back in court sometime by the end of the year with a filing. And I- I'm not going to reveal who these folks are working on the case because you don't want to give the states a heads up ever. But right, they're, they're a fantastic team, very, very committed, like literally just working on this case day and night. It's like the only work they're doing. So we're not giving up. It's as simple as that. For Adnan, we always have. Um, we do have two ways if you want to donate because I, it, there, it's not a pro bono team. We do have to pay legal bills every month and investigator bills. So there's a Launch Good, which is you can give as much money as you want one time or however. Um, and that's launchgood.com slash free Or you can be a Patreon supporter, which is like you can give a dollar a month or $5 a month or whatever. And then on the Patreon, it's patreon.com slash free I just do like updates or actually this week we had a conversation with Adnan that I put that I posted and so it'll just be different things on there.
0: Well, that's awesome. And, and how is Adnan doing? Is he kind of regrouped after?
1: Yeah, no, he's doing much better. I'll tell you, you know, the first time I saw him after the appellate loss last year, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't able to see him for about six weeks. And I think in that matter of time, he had lost like 40 pounds and his beard had gone gray. I mean, I was because he was in such shock. We were really just preparing for him to come home but thankfully he's good now he is he's you know he's gotten much better he knows people are still working on the case he knows nobody's walking away and uh he's gained back his weight (laughs) he's doing he's doing good he's doing well
0: well that's good to know well please let him know that that uh we send our our love and prayers for me and and my audience and i will and he's definitely not forgotten about
1: yeah no i definitely will because he's the one that everybody asked me about i i once in a while he's he wonders, you know, I I don't think people care about this. I'm like, you don't understand, so many people care about this case every day.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, let let him know that we that we're thinking about him and also keep us posted on Greg's case. I'm really excited to see where that turns out through the end of the year as the legal team gets working on it.
1: Yeah. Same here. I'll I'll definitely keep you guys updated. Thank you so much Bob for having me and for allowing me to talk about Greg's. I get I get invited to talk about Adnan's case a lot, but I'm really happy to talk about other cases too because uh, all of these cases need attention as you know.
0: Well, anytime you have a case you want to talk about, you just let me know.
1: I will let you know. All right. Thanks so much.
0: Yep, thank you. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audio Boom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, Please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.